This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Amazon sweepstakes seems to be in everyone's minds, including Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper's. He recently gave the state a 10 percent chance of winning a second headquarters in its 50,000 jobs. In their regular conversation at the Capitol, my colleague Ryan Warner tried to get a better idea of what Colorado offered the company to make the improbable happen. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. Denver's Economic Development Office has denied journalists' requests to get a copy of the Amazon proposal, saying it contains confidential commercial and financial data. We have a request into the state and await a reply. The state worked closely with the metro area on this bid. Do you think it's right not to let the public see what's in this? Well, I think the public will... Aside from the confidential financial information that individual property owners supply and supply that information on condition of anonymity, the overall, you know, what the pitch is and how all that looks like, I am quite sure that that will be revealed to the public. When? Can we have that now? Well, but they've asked, uh, Amazon has asked to keep this all on the down low, right? In other words, they're not publicizing. They don't want us to publicize it. So we don't want to compromise our efforts to succeed. If we're going to all this trouble... We wanted to put our best foot forward. So it's not just a question of what's in the proposal. It's also that Amazon is saying, keep this mum for No, no, I don't know. They're not talking about it publicly, right? And implicit in that, I'm not sure they've said anything to us, but implicit in that is that we're not going out there and broadcasting and trying to make a public statement. We asked Coloradans for their questions about this bid, and many brought up transportation infrastructure and traffic. Uh, Drew Allen is one of them. He's an architect in Denver, and in general, he'd be happy to land HQ2. We already have a very great place to live, and I think that bringing a company in to have a second headquarters, such as Amazon, helps to elevate the status of our city on a national and global scale. But he'd like to know, does the proposal include any commitments from the metro area or the state for roads or public transit. Can you speak to that? Well, certainly we can't make a commitment because in Colorado, the voters make the final commitment. Uh, but we certainly have expressed on multiple occasions the urgency we feel about resolving some of the transportation issues that are already affecting I-25 and I-70. And that, I'm sure, will be a major discussion during the next General Assembly session that starts in January. Almost everyone, Republican, Democrat, agrees that, that we're long past the time when we can, you know, make the investments. Well, I've, you know, on your show, I've talked multiple times about how much money Utah spends versus what Colorado spends, and we're twice their population, yet they're outspending us by four times for, for what you call expansion uh, revenue. In other words, to build additional lanes, to uh, expand capacity. They spend about $600 million a year. We spend $150 million a year. So was there a sentiment in the Amazon proposal that said... We're trying to grapple with this? Um, I don't remember sentiment in that sense. Well, let's just game this out. If Amazon came to Colorado, how would the state deal with the traffic? The state needs to deal with the traffic anyway, regardless. We, Amazon, over 10 or 15 years, is going to get to 50,000 people. I mean, we're, a, we're 3 million people in the metro area, right? So 50,000 plus 3 million It's not going to break the bank. The point of the matter is we have a traffic problem now. Forget about Amazon. I mean, Amazon has nothing to do with the sense of urgency we should all have. This is an imperative. We have to address our infrastructure issues. I've been saying that for a year and a half now. 
Well, indeed, your administration has advocated for raising more money through taxes or another mechanism to improve roads and bridges, as well as public transit. We recently talked to the head of Metro Denver's Chamber of Commerce. They'll push for a sales tax increase to land on next year's ballot for this. Are you involved in that effort? Yes, I'm certainly involved in the discussions. And certainly that sounds very passive. Well, I'm not sure what you want, but how, how uh, kinetic you want me to be. I try to gesture with my hands whenever I can. Uh, we have had multiple discussions with legislators, uh, with the Chamber of Commerce, with a lot of the different aspects of the community. You know, it affects everybody. It affects how long it takes kids to get to school. I think that we are in a position where what that tax looks like, what that, where, where that new revenue comes from, is something we want to have as much discussion about as possible. The You're bo- not sold on a sales tax? Is that what I'm hearing? No, no. I, I, I want... Here's, the, here's my three criteria. I think we need a transportation solution that addresses both the rural and urban transportation issues. I think we want a transportation solution that balances both highways and transit. And I think we want to find a revenue source that everyone can get behind. And, and those are all three of those are difficult issues, and it's going to take a lot of talking. I don't think the best way is for me to come out and say, all right, here's what we should do. You use the word kinetic. How kinetic might you be <laughs> in a campaign like this? Well, one example is that you have thrown yourself literally into campaigns that you believe in. I think about the 2005 campaign to loosen the taxpayer's bill of rights when you jumped out of an airplane on camera. That was kinetic. With a parachute, of course. Using that as a gauge of your commitment to a ballot measure, is there any type of transportation funding proposal you would jump out of a plane for? Well, I will tell you, that's about the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. So I'd look very hard before I'd get put on, before I'd strap on that parachute again. But yeah, I think, you know, whatever it will take, if we can find the right initiative, I will throw myself into it hook, line, and sinker. I will do everything I can to make sure that as I leave office, because this is going to get built on the next governor's watch, uh, but I want to make sure that, that we have the foundation, the momentum, the revenue so that we can solve this problem. And Otherwise, I, mean, I spent the last seven years of my life, the last 14 years of my life, if you include when I was mayor, working as hard as I can to cut red tape and bureaucracy and figure out ways to create jobs, right, to help entrepreneurs start businesses, to help businesses grow. If we don't have the infrastructure, then in a funny way, it's almost like I've been working against myself, right, that that success ends up creating you know, congestion and, and making people unhappy, rather than really creating the jobs for their children and their grandchildren that, should, that were intended to make them happy. You've heard here the criteria that any proposal has to meet to have your support. Let's get back to this idea of Amazon. Uh, this is a question from Wayne Seltzer. He's an engineer and software consultant who teaches at CU Boulder. The Front Range is already suffering from a lack of water, clean air, affordable housing, and transportation resources. I'm wondering, how would Amazon and 50,000 employees help solve this problem? Has the governor done the math on this tough problem? How do you consider the implications on the state's water supply? I mean, water, just bluntly, we've got challenges with water. We we are a semi-arid climate. But I don't think that's our... uh, Transportation, I look at, 100 times more serious than water. We'll figure out water. 
we have a long way we can still go in terms of conservation. And water's not my, I don't lie awake at night around water, but some of the affordable housing, I agree, these are all high-paying jobs, or not all, but the average median income is pretty high. We're going to have a responsibility, which we do already, right? Again, this is just going to increase an existing problem, but we're already looking at how do we get more incentives, the, the, the maximum bang for the buck in creating more affordable housing, new affordable housing. And motivating builders to build that. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, exactly. Providing them the right incentive. So uh, either in the, in the permitting process or in their financing, giving them some benefits so that they will, when they're building a project, they will make a greater percentage of it affordable. I think many people would say that balance hasn't yet been struck. I would totally agree. I'm, I, I'm, I mean, every growing community has this same problem, right? Seattle's got it, and San Francisco's got it, Phoenix has got it, Austin, Texas, and Nashville. We're in good company. I mean, the, the opposite, the people that don't have the problem are shrinking, right? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is our regular conversation at the state capitol with Colorado's governor, John Hickenlooper. I, I don't think it's regular. I mean, I, I, look oh, at these, I look at these okay. discussions as unique and special. Thank you for that. We recently learned something unique and special about your office. I actually can't say if it's unique, but you hire outside lobbyists. You hired one back in February for $210,000 for about a year's worth of work. Uh, the state has its own lobbyists on staff. And I wonder, what does hiring an outside lobbyist do for Coloradans? What benefits could constituents see? Well, this was a case, we looked at it, uh, we had a new administration coming in. In, that, in Washington. In Washington, exactly. So uh, with President Trump taking office, we weren't sure what his priorities would be, and we have a lot of issues in Washington that are of crucial importance to us and are worth tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And with a whole new cast of, of executives, all these secretaries are going to be making decisions that affect our industries, our companies, our employees. And we don't have somebody here working in the governor's office that is able and, and has the capacity to do that kind of lobbying in Washington. We are lucky to have a firm, Brownstein, uh, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. I always get the names confused. But we're lucky to have them, which are they're the, I think the second or third largest lobbying firm in Washington. They're based in Colorado. You look at the number of uh, projects we need federal support on with transportation, agricultural support, education grants. So just to be precise, the hiring of this outside lobbyist was directly related to the Trump administration. Absolutely. It's, it's not something you had done, for instance, to interact with the Obama administration. So when the Obama administration first came in, Federico Pena, the former mayor and the former secretary of transportation, was on his transition committee. So he set up meetings for me with Secretary Ray LaHood. And I got kind of a personal introduction to a number of those cabinet members. And that kind of a relationship didn't exist with this new administration. The lobbying contract you have now for about $200,000 is to work on a number of issues at the federal level. This is, again, with the Brownstein firm. And I was surprised to learn that this firm is actually your liaison with the congressional delegation as well. I wouldn't call them our liaison. They... they facilitate the communications between our different agencies in the state government and all of our congressional delegations. That's very useful because we don't have anyone in my office that is calling Senator Bennett or calling Senator Gardner, checking in with them on a frequent basis, whereas things are changing so rapidly 
that that kind of communication is very useful. That, I look at that as a peripheral. I mean, that's a small part of what they're doing. What they're really doing is getting me in front of Attorney General Sessions for an hour, which they did uh, back in, I think, March. In which you, your staff talked about marijuana, uh, among other things. Immigration, I know, is an issue that this is helping you track. Healthcare reform, as you mentioned. Support for the solar industry. I want to ask about a missed opportunity for you earlier this month. You took the rare step of calling a special session of the legislature. Lawmakers convened for a few days to address what leadership says was a mistake in a bill that passed last session. Uh, It took away marijuana tax money from several arts and cultural organizations and the transit agency in Metro Denver. In the special session, Republicans rejected any attempts to mend that. Uh, It left a lot of people wondering what kind of groundwork you did or didn't do before calling this session. Is there any truth to the rumor that you had a handshake agreement with Republican leadership, specifically Senate President Kevin Grantham, that his caucus would help fix the error? Well, I think there was some miscommunication there on all sides. And I think we had assumed that the, the information we'd received and the communications we'd gotten led us to believe that this was something that could be resolved fairly easily. And so we picked the date and went ahead and did it. You heard that from Republican leadership? Yeah. Or you heard that secondhand? Or? Well, we heard from Republican leadership, but you know, oftentimes you have one conversation and then the conversation evolves as time goes on and both sides gather input from different constituencies and sometimes things change. Well, in this case, they changed. Did you have that handshake agreement with the Senate president? Maybe it would be a high-five agreement. I'm not sure you'd call it a handshake agreement, but certainly we've been led to believe that this was something that, that would be well-received or w- wouldn't be a big problem. I wouldn't, let's, take, let's strike well-received from the record. I don't think any of us had any illusions that anything would be well-received. No one likes to make a mistake, and it was the, the whole notion of having to get this resolved rapidly, which, I mean, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars every month that's not resolved in revenues that these folks that their voters had voted for. What do you think changed? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, that would be pure conjecture. You're I'm, not going to speculate on this. Yeah, thing. exactly. Well, do you think that the mistake is now just permanently a part of uh, how things operate in Colorado? Or do you think in the coming session, this can be fixed to help these arts organizations, transportation districts? Well, I think that we will try to do everything we can to facilitate that kind of resolution. It's hard to say what, how they're going to respond. I have a responsibility to try and bring the different sides together and make sure that if there are issues, we get them resolved. And, you know, obviously I didn't do a good enough job at that or else we would have gotten something done, done in the special session. So you hold out some hope for the new session, I suppose. Is that what yeah. I hear you saying? Yeah, no, I, I, I hold out a lot of hope. I think this is, again, we made a mistake. No one, I think it was an important point. To, to recognize is that every single person, every com- everyone I talked to, Republicans and Democrats, every comment I saw in any media, admitted that we'd made a mistake, that this was not the intention. And I think that now it's just a question of, is there, are there constitutional issues? What, what is the right way to fix the mistake? When you say are there constitutional issues, Republicans during the special session specifically took a hard line on Tabor. They said the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights in Colorado means that lawmakers can't restore or change a tax without voter approval, that it's, it's voters' right. responsibility to repair this. Senator Grantham accused you of asking lawmakers to skirt Tabor in this. <laughs> Is that what you were asking them to do? Um, <clears throat> no, I, don't, I, I certainly don't think so. And I think now we understand that we have a, a burden of proof, and we're going to go out there and try and demonstrate 
what the law really does say. Do you regret calling the special session? You know, there were some benefits in that sense of we got everyone admitted that it was a mistake and everyone admitted that, that we ought to figure out, try and figure out some way to solve it. But, you know, we spent $50,000. Now, when you're, when you're losing these nonprofits out of five or $600,000 a month, $50,000 didn't seem like that much, but we didn't get anything done. To a federal-level controversy now about Trump administration officials using private planes on the taxpayer's dime. The health secretary resigned because of this. The EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, has also been criticized for a trip to Colorado in August. He went to visit the Gold King Mine with you and other officials. That's where an EPA crew triggered a toxic spill a few years ago. It's been reported that your office offered him a ride on the state plane to get him to the meeting on time. What exactly was the communication like between the two staffs? Do you know why he declined the the ride? I think they were worried. They were far enough away from where our plane was that the additional delay, we wouldn't have been able to have time. We had a press conference scheduled in Durango. So he was worried that we would not have time to get up to the mine, really see it firsthand, and get back to the press conference. And truth be known, we probably would have been 20 minutes later, and we probably wouldn't have been able to go to the mine. And it's worth pointing out that at the mine, uh, Administrator Pruitt said what all of us really wanted him to say, was, which was that the EPA recognizes their mistake and said that they would take responsibility. It sounds like you don't think that this was irresponsible on the administration's part. I really part. don't. Okay. I don't think it was irresponsible. It strikes me, though, that if he had said yes to the state plane, it would have given you some time to speak privately with the EPA Trust me, administrator. I was lobbying as hard as I could to get him on a plane. <laughs> what would you have liked to have said? Well, certainly I would spend a fair amount of time talking about the, the Gold King. And we didn't have time for this when we were at the mine. But I would have liked to go on further and, and say, all right, here are these other mining districts we have. Here are some of the, the mineral concentrations that we're seeing coming from these century-old workings how can we work together to address it? And it's not just Colorado. These are you know, a couple thousand serious pollution sources all over the Rocky Mountain West. Governor, thanks for being with us. Always my pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. John Hickenlooper is Colorado's Democratic governor. He speaks regularly with Ryan Warner at the state capitol. Coming up 500 years after Reformation, a Denver church is bringing Catholics and Protestants together. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 500 years ago this month, Catholic monk Martin Luther challenged the leadership of the church. This marked the beginning of the Reformation, the seed for the Lutheran church, and centuries of intense debate and distrust between the two faiths. A Denver church has decided to focus on what unites Lutherans and Catholics. It's formed a place of worship for both. Father Don Sutton and Pastor Penny Walsh are with the St. Paul Lutheran and Catholic Community of Faith. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. St. Paul was one of the first joint Lutheran-Catholic efforts in the country. There's a Roman Catholic service Saturday evenings and a Lutheran service Sunday mornings. It wasn't this way when the church was established about 125 years ago in Denver as the evangelical English-speaking Lutheran church. But even the early founders of this had some unconventional ideas. Isn't that right? Yes. 
To be an English-speaking church in that era for Lutherans was unique. Why? Because Lutherans were very much an ethnic population, and they were either Swedish or German or Danish. Oh, so they formed like a, a language churches in a yes. sense. Yes, and so this one being an English-speaking church was very specific and very intentional in an effort to be open to the public and the world. And, and was there a similar makeup for Roman Catholic churches at the time? Yes. I've lived both in Boston and in Toledo, and in in those places, you could stand in one spot and see five Roman Catholic churches because there would be the German church, the Irish church, the Polish church, the Slovakian church, because they too were formed along language lines. So even though there were some similarities there between the two, yes. the two, uh, two yes. faiths. Now, Father Sutton, you helped transform St. Paul into a church for both Lutherans and Catholics, and that was more than 14 years ago. Why did the church want to make this type of change? Well, I must caution against saying the church wanted to make the change. That's a pretty global right. uh, statement. Although the the Lutheran and Roman Catholic communities worldwide have been in dialogue for over 50 years around uh, what unites us instead of what divides us. And the the Lutheran pastor at the time and I, who were friends, thought it would be a really good idea to take the theory of um, ecumenism and see if we could put it into practice and what it would look like to have two Christian communities united in many, many ways um, come together as one community of faith with different traditions. Did you start with, with small goals, bringing the congregations together? Or, or was it a grandiose, this is the new way we're oh, no. going to... Okay. It was, it was small. I, I think it started with, we'll use the space and see what happens. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, initially, we, we knew we would be doing some things together. We, do a, we have a very strong social outreach to the poor and the neighborhood, and we knew that we would be doing that together. And then we began doing social things together, Oktoberfest and, and Mardi Gras and St. Patrick's Day parties. Um, and literally, I think the first year when it came to Holy Week, we decided that it would be good if we could do Holy Week together. And the Lutheran pastor, whose name was Kevin Maley, and I sat down with our respective liturgical books to see if we could combine them and discovered they were identical. And you the, had thought there were going to be differences. We both, we both were pretty high church liturgists in our own tradition and did not know that the liturgists had already uh, preempted our desire and had put them together. The, the services in the Lutheran Church and in the Roman Catholic Church for Holy Week are the same. Yeah. A, a word or two tweaked, but but the structure of the service, the content of the service is the same. And so then we began to say, wow, there's we have more in common. So it, it, it said that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses opposing what he called indulgences in the Catholic Church to the door of Germany's Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517. Mm-hmm. How do each of you see that moment in history, Penny? Um, I actually, Martin Luther was simply wanting to open a dialogue. He wasn't trying to start any kind of a revolution or a reformation. He just wanted a conversation. I see that moment as being one of those chirotic moments that 
was unintentional, but nonetheless just developed into this amazing long-term change that happened across all of Europe as a result of that moment. And again, but Lutherans find that it's a very pivotal moment, of course, the start of, yes. of that. It was pivotal for the entire Western world, not just Lutherans. Father? I would say it took the Catholic Church 400-plus years to come to the same conclusion that Pastor Penny just articulated. Um, if you look at the Second Vatican Council uh, that uh, St. John the Twenty-Third called, much of what it discussed and concluded uh, reflects what Martin Luther was hoping for uh, 500 years ago the inclusion of the laity, the recognition of the baptized, the priesthood of all the faithful through baptism, um, worship in the language of the people instead of in a language they didn't understand, um, a host of things that he thought would facilitate the prayer life, spiritual life of, of the people, um, the Roman tradition picked up on in the 60s, and and that too facilitated the opening of the dialogue between world Lutherans and uh, the Vatican and Roman Catholics that that has led to the kinds of documents we have that say basically we're way closer together than we are far apart. Well, and, and yes. the Pope, Pope himself has, has made certain changes in that recently, correct? Well, a year ago, the the beginning of the year of celebration or commemoration of the uh, Reformation, uh, Pope Francis was in Lund, Sweden, um, to do a, a prayer service with the the head of the World Lutheran Federation um, to say we are on the path together. And he praised Martin Luther as a quote great reformer. Yes. No, for the Lutheran Church, what what was that moment for you? Well, that was amazingly wonderful because the Lutherans have actually been pushing an ecumenical effort for quite a while, and to finally get to the place where they could do something together with the Pope was an amazing experience for everybody and it was everybody was incredibly grateful and really pleased overall with how it came out and as a result the local population our bishop has been doing prayer services with all of the archdiocese in in our territory and so that's gone really well too you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Father Don Sutton and Pastor Penny Walsh of the St. Paul Lutheran and Catholic Community of Faith. The church has both a Catholic and Lutheran congregation, and to bring out reconciliation of the faiths, the church focuses on what unites them. Um, I want to get back to this, this schism. This, this, it, it seems to me there's also the, the Lutheran faith has divisions, but of course the, the Catholic church also has divisions in itself. Uh, can you maybe uh, bring some light to that? Well, again, we, we spoke of it a little bit earlier. The Lutheran faith developed uh, first in Germany, but then it spread into the other um, Scandinavian countries and became very much language-based churches. So when they came to the United States, they came up with all their different language groups, and so they were separated. And so it has taken all of those years for the whole thing to start merging together until we are today with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, a merger of all of the major Lutheran populations. We do have other Lutheran groups, but the the really big ones all came together as part of the ELCA. Yeah. I have a, a theory. This is not a well-founded theory, but that every religious tradition, uh, not just Christians, but all religious traditions have members 
who will find their comfort in structure and law, and others who have less need for that. And, and I, I say that with, with respect for individual differences, so that in the Roman tradition, we still have people who really want the Latin Mass. Um, if you think about our Jewish brothers and sisters, we have the, the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox, and then we have the Reformed. So there's a spectrum in every religious tradition of, of practice and observance. And, and I do think that it's, it, it has been the custom for us always to talk about how we're different. And, and now in the dialogue between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, we're saying, wait, how are we the same? I, I, I use as a regular example, if you want to find commonalities, you can. There is a large healthcare corporation housed here in in Denver that represents the Seventh-day Adventists and the Catholic Health Initiative. And I, I couldn't imagine how they could be one corporation. They found commonality in their mission, which is healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and I say, when, when people ask about how things work at St. Paul, no one's ever asked me if the meal we give them is a Lutheran meal or a Catholic meal. The work of the gospel and our faith in Jesus Christ are commonalities that bind us. They don't separate us. And so, Pastor Walsh, I'm assuming that is why you see this church unity that you're trying to build here is so important. Absolutely. We are one church. We were always intended to be one church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so all of this splintering was not intended by God and the Holy Spirit. And so all of this coming back together again is how— I feel God working, and St. Paul is just an incredible example of what can be done and how, and how the, two the two faith traditions can come together and be one community with, with no conflict. We have no conflict. And so that's just a gift, and I think what we do here is a gift to, the, to our, both of our worlds, but it's a gift to the world totally because this is the way it should look. And very briefly, Father Sutton, do you ever see St. Paul Lutheran and Catholic Community of Faith becoming an entirely merged church? Right now, there are different services. What are the next steps here? Well, two things. I don't think we we want to merge as one. We want no. to reflect the beauty and value of diversity in the Christian tradition. Now, there are challenges, um, of course— with the larger church polities because um, the bigger an organization, the slower it moves. And right. so the, the St. Paul Catholic community will be moving into affiliation with something called the Ecumenical Catholic Communion so that we, we are not offending the rules and regulations of the archdiocese but are able to, to really reach out to people uh, who are looking for a church home. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank You're you welcome. so much. Father Don Sutton and Pastor Penny Walsh are with the St. Paul Lutheran and Catholic Community of Faith. For more information about the church's Reformation commemoration, visit CPR.org. Just ahead, we meet the architect behind Google's new complex in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 
When Google decided to build a new office complex in Boulder, the tech firm turned to an architect with deep roots in Colorado, David Triba. You may not know his name, but you've seen his work. A short list includes the History Colorado Center, the Wellington Webb Municipal Building, in Denver, the restoration of Denver Union Station, and in addition to the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. Triba grew up in Colorado Springs, worked for a time in New York City, and returned to Colorado in 1988. His goal is to design modern buildings that are sensitive to their historical surroundings. David, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. The new Google campus opens in December. It's two four-story buildings on a four-acre site, and you're currently designing a third building. Eventually, 1,500 employees will work there. When the project was announced, there was some concern in Boulder that it would be too imposing, too monolithic. How do you address that issue with the design? Well, certainly Boulder is a place that's quite unique in the country in its connection to the nature and the the wilderness out every window. And uh, this particular site that Google chose uh, is uh, very unique in itself in that it's connected to nature. There are 75 to 80-year-old cottonwood trees that run right through the middle. There's an open running stream uh, that floods from time to time. And uh, the building has uh, three sides that are facing uh, active streets. And so uh, what's unique about Boulder is the scale of the city. And so it was not hard to think about scaling this building down into a series of smaller structures that formed a campus. And there's an image of this on our website, cprnews.org. Can you describe a bit more of it? So you've broken down these this giant place where a we lot have. of people into three distinct buildings. We have. Yeah. And it also uh, helps to keep people close to the windows, close to nature. Uh, in the center of uh, all of this campus uh, is green space. On the outside are the views to the Flatirons, uh, to the Front Range, the Indian Peaks Wilderness just outside the window. And then right across the street is the new Boulder Transit Center. So it's it's good for people working inside the building. But what about people outside looking at this this building? Well, the building has uh, quite a bit smaller scale than its neighbors. Uh, there's a Whole Foods across the street. And right behind the building is a Target. So in uh, it really sets a precedent, I think, for the future uh, for buildings that are carefully modulated to fit into the Boulder scale. Now, now, Google has a word for their company culture, uh, googly, I think is how, how you say that. And that applies to their office spaces as well. How do you interpret this googly? Well, indeed, it's been really through working with them very, very closely. And it's been uh, a three-year process. And, and what I find very fascinating is the company is changing so rapidly and maturing so rapidly that that term googly is evolving. Uh, but it, what it really means is uh, what I've come to know is, is an importance on allowing individual freedom and flexibility uh, to be creative, uh, for people to come together and work together in different kinds of spaces uh, that, are, that are free of uh, the normal rigors of uh, corporate America. And, and what are those, some, of the, some of those amenities that, that you, you put into these buildings? Well, beyond just the... the uh, the proximity to natural light and views and to nature, uh, both internally and externally. Uh, there are uh, functions, I think, that uh, Google has led uh, in their thinking, and this is what's exciting about the future of all office design, uh, where the, the building is truly in service 
to the people that work there. So not um, just a place to sit at a computer. Right. That's right. But to actually be a part of that building, be a part of a person's everyday work life. Part of the community of the company and um, a part of the community at, at large in Boulder. So there's this, uh, this flexibility of uh, – and it's a very natural way for humans to need – uh, isolation sometimes when they're thinking, uh, and and just as they need community and and proximity to each other, so all kinds of different spaces, but different different activities throughout the day. Uh, we need to take a break and get up away from our desk, and we need to be active. And um, everything about the Google campus is pr- the, for the promotion of physical activity and mental um, creativity. And uh, a sort of a spiritual freedom of of innovation. Was it fun for you designing this 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 campus this complex because of that that fact that you're building a a, a space that people will interact with every day? Well, uh, one of the things I think that's so uh, paramount is it wasn't me; it was a group of people that we all work together. Uh, we have some incredibly talented people in our office. Uh, certainly on the other side, on the client side, they're deeply involved in their culture and, and the transformation, the evolution of this culture to make it better and better. So uh, I, was, I was thrilled to be a part of the team, uh, but it's very exciting to see this cutting-edge conversation and how it will affect the way we uh, work and live in the future. David Triba is founder and principal of Triba Architects. He joins us in Colorado Matters. He has designed the new office for Google in Boulder. But I want to get to Union Station in Denver. Uh, That's just one of the many historical preservation projects that you have done. Uh, It's become a hugely popular gathering place. You can see kids running through the fountains uh, during the summer, uh, both inside and outside, of course, on the plaza. What makes this space that was a kind of an old shell of a place work so well today? Well, again, this was a part of an enormous team effort, and it took uh, probably 20 years for this to evolve uh, as our city has evolved and as our understanding of public space has evolved. But it really came from the leadership of Dana Crawford. In particular, her vision uh, for this this particular place as the Denver place, uh, where people could move freely through this station and and be become fully alive with activity almost 24 hours a day. And her vision of bringing a hotel to this place where the lights would be on 24 hours a day was critically important to the historic preservation of the place. To, to ensure that there would always be this activity. Pairing that with RTD's vision of creating a hub, uh, which really came from an enormous public process. So it was very exciting to be a part of that. And Dana Crawford developed the Oxford Hotel as well, as well as Larimer Square. So she's very instrument- instrumental in all of the development of, of downtown Denver. I went back and found an article about you in Westward from 1999, nearly 20 years ago. At the time, you called Denver, quote, an empty canvas. And the article said, quote, Triba's dream is to remake downtown Denver into the kind of place where tens of thousands of people live and work, where kids walk to school and people can take their families out for a night in the town without ever getting into a car. Has that dream come true? Pretty close. It's uh, And it's not just my dream. Again, uh, what is really unique about Denver in particular uh, and, and uh, cities in the West, but I would argue that it's, it's a special place in Denver that uh, where uh, enormously large groups of people can work together to accomplish great things. 
And it's through the Denver Partnership, Historic Denver, the Denver Metro Chamber, that all have put these efforts into these small things as well as the large things that we enjoy, like airports and, uh, and, and fast tracks, the light rail system. Uh, that but but real, Denver is bursting at the seams. It's, it it's, is. People it is. are coming here, and, and it's still very car-centric. And it's been the dream uh, for these people to come here. And I think uh, through technology uh, and just through the sheer uh, uh, transformation of, of one generation to another in their habits and their uh, desires, uh, I think we're going to change uh, in a way that is tremendously exciting. And I think uh, you can see it already in terms of the automobile. We, we're, we're not yet at the worst of, of this uh, congestion issue, and it's going to be a, a, a big thing in the next coming three, four, five, six years. But I think it's going to be solved in a way that's very exciting through technology and, and just through a change of behavior and habit. The city is booming. Construction's all over the place, as you can see. But, but people are not happy with the design or, or quality of some of these buildings that have been built. Uh, last year, in an op-ed for the Denver Post, architect Jeff Shepard called them, quote, meaningless, uninspiring structures. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree. But I also think that there's another side to that okay. story. Um, and it, it was very important uh, for that article to get us thinking about what we do. And Jeff uh, did a great service to our community in reminding us how important quality design is in the work that we do. There are also a great number of structures in, in close-in places that I see uh, are responding to the marketplace where design matters. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm inspired every day by the good work that's being done here as well. Uh, there are some fantastic new structures in the gold Golden Triangle. And briefly, would you want to see restrictions or things better suited to where they're actually being built, like let's say Lodo or Rhino or, or North Denver? Good question. And um, I think we have to be careful about too many restrictions. But I think as a community, we can do much, much more to come together uh, and create uh, the kind of continuity that we have uh, that we've taken for granted that was part of the foundation of Denver. How and do we are, do that? Well, there were a few... There were a few regulations uh, uh, when, uh, at the turn of the century, after Denver had a great fire and most of our wood buildings burned, there was a law that said we must build with masonry. And uh, that was a great law because of all the clay that we have in the Platte Valley. Uh, so, so maybe doing something like that again, but maybe in a lower something scale? like that. Yes. I think that could be important. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. David Triba is founder and principal of Triba Architects, which designed a new office for Google in Boulder. It opens in December. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Three years ago, Boulder unveiled plans for a new piece of public art, a giant sculpture that read, Yes. It was a big moment for a city working to revamp its cultural programs, but a good number of residents responded to the artwork with a resounding no. As CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explains, that uproar brought about a new approach to public art. So that word, yes, 
It was read, all caps, and followed by an exclamation mark. The city picked the proposal from more than 360 entries and planned to put it along a glass wall outside Boulder's main public library. We were both appalled. We just couldn't believe that Boulder was you know, stooping to doing something like that. And who were they doing it for? That's longtime resident T. Valadares. He and his wife, Maria, wrote a letter to the Boulder Daily Camera newspaper. In it, they criticized the sculpture and its price tag of $150,000. I could have seen it maybe at a McDonald's or a playground, but not something that everyone in the city uses. Valadares worried it would confuse people inside the library who saw the word yes spelled backwards. And he says it would block a great view of the mountains. Plus, the committee chose artists from Miami, and T. and Maria Valadares thought that money could go to Colorado artists instead. Dozens of people with similar concerns called and wrote the city, which heard the outcry loud and clear. Matt Chazansky manages Boulder's Office of Arts and Culture. When that project was canceled, it was a real awakening for us. City officials halted the commission and asked Chazansky to refine the public art selection process. They realized more people should have a say. So he went back out into the community to ask what types of public art people wanted to see. We found out that there's a very strong desire for sophisticated arts experiences, world-class things, but that the narrative that's told is very much about this place. The city's cultural staff took that feedback and started a program called Experiments in Public Art. It used the money from the original Yes idea and split it up among nine temporary works. So much public art is really buttoned up. It's permitted and designed and uh, stamped by an engineer. But this new program built in more freedom and interactivity. It also included four projects by local artists. Mandy Vink coordinates Boulder's public art. She wanted the experimental series to bring different types of projects to different areas. It ranged from a food-based experience to projection narration, kinetics and robotics, um, massive puppets. <laughs> it was it was the whole gamut. I'll definitely have to cut this. New York City artist Mary Mattingly installed her piece in a parking lot near breweries, mechanic shops, and a bike path along a creek. It's called Everything at Once. I acquired a military trailer that had been to Afghanistan and back as the base for the sculpture. She bought it in Lamar, Colorado, from a company that resells military equipment. The trailer has a flat surface that's a green camouflage color. On top, Mattingly built four walls out of wood from a closed public school in Wisconsin. We're going up some small stairs. Inside, you'll find a small reflection pool filled with water. It's surrounded by concrete blocks, so you can sit, dip your feet in, and think. Mattingly says it's a chance to contemplate leftover materials and how we use public money and spaces. To me, it speaks about a hollowing out of a lot of the public services that we have, and uh, kind of the opposite is happening with military infrastructure. That's her take. But Mattingly recognizes there are other sides to the issue. And she's well aware of Colorado's military presence and that war benefits the U.S. too. And thankfully we can be critics and we can question. These experiments in public art conclude with the final installation early next year. Where the series goes from there is up in the air right now.
Boulder voters will decide on a capital improvement tax extension in November. It includes $400,000 for public art over four years. Matt Chazansky of Boulder's cultural office says they don't know yet how they would use that money. We're hoping it's a mix. We definitely want to put some bronzes in parks, but we want to complement that in the right way. To make sure that happens, Chazansky and his team will go back to the community later this year. They'll have surveys and discussions on what that public art should be. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Mary Mattingly's installation, Everything at Once, runs through Friday. And that's our show for today. Thanks to audio engineer Brady McNellis, director Stephanie Wolf, and producer David Hill. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.